Jesus tells us in John 6, 63, that the words that he has given to us are spirit and life. And so if you have your Bible with you today, and I hope you do, please turn to the New Testament book of 1 Peter there near the back of your Bible. We are going to finish looking at 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19 this morning, where the Apostle Peter, one of Jesus' closest followers and disciples, is teaching us as elect exiles, how to handle the extended times of suffering that these last days before the return of Jesus Christ often brings. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1 says, In the last days there will come times of difficulty. And therefore, knowing how to handle these times of difficulties are essential for us as Christians if we are called to live for the glory of God in our day. It is essential to Christianity 101 to knowing how to handle times of difficulty and suffering. And so, Peter shows us four ways that we as Christians are to handle times of suffering in a God-honoring way that points to the grace that is found in Jesus Christ our Lord. The first way is by remembering that suffering is to be assumed. That's what Peter taught us, if you remember back in verse 12 of chapter 4, When he wrote that we shouldn't be surprised by extended times of suffering because God in love is growing our faith and our dependency on him as he does for all his beloved children. So suffering is to be assumed. Second, we recall that suffering is to be appreciated. That's in verses 13 through 14 where Peter walked us through sometimes the difficult truth where he told us that instead of being surprised by trials, we should rejoice in them. Because suffering reminds us that it's preparing for us as God's children an anticipated award, glory when Christ is revealed. And it's guaranteeing for us a present power, the spirit of glory even of God coming to rest upon us to give us grace in those times of trials. Well, this morning we're going to see two more ways that we are to handle extended times of suffering that come from being end times exiles. The first is to understand that suffering is to be assessed. That's what we're going to see in verses 15 through 18 this morning. In other words, not all suffering is the same or created equal or come from the same reasons. All suffering should be examined to make sure that we are learning the lessons we're supposed to be learning in suffering. And the second truth that we're going to learn this morning is that suffering is to be assigned. In other words, it's not to be carried by us alone. It's to be continually handed over and entrusted to one who can carry that suffering for us. And so these are the four ways that you and I as elect exiles following in the footsteps of Jesus are to handle times of suffering that we experience in the times in which we live. We are to remember that suffering is to be assumed, appreciated, assessed, and assigned. And so with that in mind... Uh, If you would please stand with me out of respect and honor for the word of God as I read our passage this morning, which comes from 1 Peter 4, 12 through 19. The Apostle Peter, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, gives us these words to encourage and convict our hearts today. He writes this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice in so far as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. 
But let none of you suffer as a murderer, or a thief, or an evildoer, or as a meddler. Yet, if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Therefore, let us who suffer according to God's will entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is the word of God whose rules we declare with our lips. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have come to this moment in our service, the climax of it all in which we worship you in the greatest and most fundamental of ways by giving heed to your word. Father, we understand that it is by not heeding your word that this is how mankind fell in the garden. And ever since then, we have acknowledged that your people give you the worship and praise that you are due by listening to your word and following you. And so I pray, Father, that by the grace that is ours in Christ Jesus and by the spirit that you have implanted within us, Father, I pray that you would help us to understand your word today, that we would give heed to it, and that we would obey for your honor and your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So after Peter shows us that suffering is to be assumed and appreciated here in this life as followers of Jesus, he then gives us an important clarification to that last point about how suffering should be appreciated by telling us that third, suffering is to be assessed. Suffering is to be assessed. In other words, not all suffering is the same or should be handled in the same way. It is to be examined, it is to be assessed as to what type of suffering we're actually facing. And Peter introduced this important point for us already. If you were taking notice, if you remember back in verse 13, Peter made that point that we can, appreci- that we can appreciate our sufferings and we can rejoice in them, but only, he says, insofar as you share in Christ's sufferings. And then again, he said in verse 14, that Peter said that we are blessed in our sufferings, but only if you are insulted for the name of Christ. So those are important clarifiers, I think, that we need to take note of this morning. And that is that suffering can only be a blessing, and that it can only be something that is truly rejoiced in if it's being handled like Jesus handled his suffering, and if it's being handled for his glory. In other words, if your suffering is a result of you doing what is right and good and true for the glory of God, then you're blessed in that suffering. But if you're suffering as a result of doing what is wrong or sinful or deceptive for your own benefit, then you are not blessed. (laughs) Uh, And so Peter's already been preparing us for this coming thought that when you and I start suffering, we shouldn't immediately assume that we're being righteously persecuted and that we're automatically suffering for the cause of Christ and that every hardship is us taking up our cross in some way, shape, or form. No, suffering is to be assessed. And, and so we need to assess the situation and assess the suffering. And we're to assess the suffering that comes into our lives by asking two very important questions. The first question that we should ask ourselves is, what is its cause? What is its cause? That's in verses 15 through 16. In other words, we should ask ourselves when we're going through an extended period of suffering, why am I suffering? Why am I suffering? 
He says, but let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. This is very similar to what Peter has already taught us back in chapter 2, verse 20, when he wrote, what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if you do good and suffer for it, you endure. This is a gracious thing in the sight of God. See, suffering is only of spiritual benefit if you are suffering for the right reasons in the right way. And that's why Peter says here in verse 15, but let none of you suffer in these ways, he says, as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or a meddler. You know, if you go out and kill somebody and find yourself on death row, you cannot turn around and say, I'm carrying my cross for Jesus. Brother, you're not carrying the cross of Christ. You are bearing the consequences for your own carnality. If you as a Christian defraud... If you as a Christian cheat, if you as a Christian commit evil against someone, and then you suffer for it in this life, that is not persecution. That is punishment. And you're not being persecuted unless you're being punished for doing what is right. It's very important to remember. And that's why Peter says here, don't suffer as what? As a murderer. Now this is obviously and most immediately referring to someone who takes away the life of another. But we also need to remember what Jesus taught us in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 22, that whoever hates their brother in their heart has the heart of a murderer. And so as followers of Jesus, it is not a badge of honor to face suffering in life because we hated someone by either assaulting their body, assaulting their person, or assaulting their reputation. In other words, if you're a jerk and you suffer for it, you're not being persecuted, you're being punished. If we suffer for doing things like that, we deserve that. We deserve that suffering as punishment. Peter also says next, don't suffer as a murderer or as a thief. Now, a thief is someone who takes something from someone that doesn't belong to him. We know that. But again, we need to remember the full teaching of Jesus Christ and the apostles on this, that to covet something is to have the heart of a thief. And so as followers of Jesus, listen to this if you're into tax fraud, and some of you might be, (laughs) you're not being persecuted if you face hardship because you've been defrauding or taking advantage of people through greed, envy, or covetousness. You can't excuse carnality as just business. No, Jesus is Lord of business. And so if we suffer for doing things like this, take heed, all politicians in Washington. We're not suffering righteous persecution. We're getting our just desserts. If we suffer for doing things like that, out of acting out of greed, envy, and covetousness, we deserve suffering, not as persecution, but as punishment. And then, lest someone think that they can wiggle out of this, Peter then gives a very general term next when he says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or thief or as an evildoer. That is quite simply someone who does something contrary to what God has said. Right? So if you suffer for doing what God forbids, or you suffer for, for neglecting what God commands, that's not persecution. Again, that's punishment. That's just God's moral nature caked into the universe in which he's created. And then Peter finishes with this interesting word. He says, let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer or as a meddler. And, and that's a unique word that only occurs here in the entire New Testament. And it basically means someone who looks into 
messes around with and interferes with things that are outside their responsibility who take responsibility for things that belong to someone else. In other words, Peter's saying, don't stick your nose into other people's business. I think this is a good word for us as Christians to remember. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4.11, he says, aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands, even as we instructed you. In other words, don't be an agitator. Don't purposely be a disruptor to your society. Purpose to live a quiet life. Purpose to mind your own business. Purpose to work with your own hands. In other words, stay focused on your own immediate responsibilities. Don't be a meddler. And Peter probably has in mind here the idea of primarily political agitation. Christians are not to get involved in disruptive revolutionary activities, particularly if your government isn't commanding you to do what God forbids or forbidding you what God uh, commands. If you can please God and man, you should. As Romans 12 verse 18 says, if possible, as far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. So we're not to be known as Christians, as disruptors of our society or to or to eagerly interfere with the processes of our government. As 1 Peter 2.13 says, we are to be subject biblically for the Lord's sake to every human institution. And, you know, if you want that more fully explained, go back and listen to when I talked there in 1 Peter chapter 2. We took our time with it. So, if possible, as much as it depends on you, live a quiet life, be a functioning member of society, honor Christ as Lord, preach the gospel to the lost, pray without ceasing, and don't try to overthrow your societal structures. Don't be a meddler. Because if you are, if you stick your nose into other people's business, don't be surprised if you get hit on the nose. That's what Peter's saying. Because according to scripture in Jesus in Matthew 26, 52, political agitators and revolutionaries are never called persecuted. They're always called punished. So let none of you suffer as a murderer or as a thief or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Verse 16, yet if anyone suffers, here's the contrast, yet if anyone suffers as a what? A Christian. Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. See, that's the only reason why we as believers ought to suffer at the hands of others in this life. It's not because we're doing evil towards them or we're disrupting our society around us, but it's because we're living as what? Christians. That should be the only reason. Because we're living as Christians. Now that word Christian only occurs two other times in the entire New Testament, in Acts chapter 11 and Acts 26. And it is, interestingly enough, it's never a word that believers in the early church used to refer to themselves. Whenever you see it pop up, it was always a word that the ancient world applied to believers and followers of Jesus Christ. And that's because back then it was a pejorative term. It was a demeaning word. You say, well, why? The answer is for the longest time we really didn't know because we didn't even know what the word Christian meant. We didn't even know what the word Christian meant. A lot of commentators just assumed Christian or Christianos in the Greek means something like little Christ. What's interesting is that just recently, some ancient Greek papyri were discovered, and, what's, and what was uncovered in that writing is that there was a special way of referring to people's slaves and servants back then in the Greco-Roman culture. So, for example, they found out that the Caesaranos uh, in the Greek meant a slave or a servant of Caesar. 
So what would the word Christianos mean? It would mean a slave or a servant of Christ. And that's what the word Christian means. It was a pejorative term back then because to the Greeks and the Romans, Jesus was the most epic loser who ever existed. You worship a man who died as a criminal, naked, on a cross? As 1 Corinthians one twenty three states, Christ crucified is a stumbling block to Jews and folly or foolishness to the Gentiles. And so when the unbelieving world would see the believers and followers of Jesus walking around, and they'd say, oh, you're a Christianos. You're a servant of that epic loser, Jesus, right? You're the lowest of the low. You're, you're a slave of Christ. And Peter says, you know what? Don't be ashamed of that. Don't be ashamed of that. In fact, glorify God in that name. Be proudly known as a servant of Christ and glorify God in that name. See, contrary to what some translation committees say today, we ought not to be ashamed to be called slaves or servants of Christ. We ought to rejoice in it. We ought to glorify God in the name. And that's exactly what Peter in the early church did, by the way. Acts chapter 5, verses 41 through 42 tells us this, that when they, that is Peter and the rest of the apostles, left the presence of the council that had just killed Jesus a few weeks before, they rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. And every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that the Christ was Jesus. Notice, they weren't ashamed. They rejoiced. Why? It's because they had suffered dishonor, but not because they were a murderer or a meddler or a thief or an evildoer. They were able to rejoice in their suffering because their suffering had come upon them for the sake of Christ and for the glory of his name. They suffered distinctly as Christians, as those serving the authority of Christ. And that's the only reason why a believer should suffer at the hands of others in this life. It's not because you're acting in an evil way or you're being a disruptor or a murderer or anything like that. It's because you're living as someone who is truly set free as a devoted servant and slave of Jesus Christ, serving only him above all else. And so suffering is to be assessed first by the question, what's the cause of this suffering? And then second by the question, what's its comparison What's, in, what's its comparison? See, when we as believers undergo suffering in this life, we need to remember to compare it to its alternative. Peter does this for us in verses 17 through 18 in these sobering words when he writes, For it is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? Brothers and sisters, this is critical for us to remember. When we are going through trials here on earth, we need to compare the suffering that we are experiencing as believers now with the suffering that will come upon unbelievers later. And if we do that, it'll help us gain an eternal perspective and handle our suffering correctly for the glory of God. We need to assess our suffering by its comparison. 
Now, if you recall, back in verse 7, Peter said the end of all things is at hand. And here in verse 17, he says it is time for judgment to begin. This tells us that Peter still has his end times emphasis in mind when he's writing this passage. And he's telling us that the time in which we are now living as followers of Jesus is going to be a time marked by judgment. And that word time, by the way, is is karyos in the Greek, and it means an extended time period, a season of suffering and hardship, if you will. And you and I are now living in that season of judgment, Peter tells us. The season of judgment began at the cross when God's judgment towards sin started through judging our sins in finality in Christ. That time of judgment continues today as God continues to purify his people from their sins. And it will end when God judges all the world's sin at the great white throne judgment someday. We are right now as believers living in the middle of all that, living in the last days of the last years, awaiting the end of all things. And therefore, as such, Peter tells us here, we will experience extended times of suffering, hardship, and as Peter calls it here, judgment. See, this is why we'll often be called to suffer. It's because God is judging and purging something in the life of his people, isn't he? He's judging and he's purging sin. Right? He is testing and purifying us as his beloved bride, as Ephesians 5.27 says, so that we might be presented to him in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, holy and without blemish. God is focused on making us, his treasured people, more like Jesus and less like this world. And so, as Peter says, it's time for judgment to begin at the household of God which is the body of Christ, the redeemed people of the Lord. 1 Peter 2.5 already says that we're a spiritual house being built up for God. So God's judgment started on sin with his son. It has moved to us, his children, in purifying us from it. And soon it will end with God judging the whole world and his entire creation. And so Peter's saying here, if you're ever struggling to know how to handle your suffering, remember, consider, and assess the comparison. That if judgment begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and sinner? Here Peter wants us to compare the inescapability and intensity of whatever judgment we might face with that of the world. First, compare the inescapability. He says, if judgment begins with us who have embraced the gospel, right? If we can't escape the purging and testing judgment of God in our lives, what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? Answer, they surely will not escape. Hebrews 2 verse 3 states, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? In other words, you cannot, you will not. If the consecrated in this world must endure suffering for the glory of God, how much more the condemned? 2 Thessalonians 1.5 puts it this way. The fact that you are suffering is evidence of the righteous judgment of God that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God. And then Paul says this in verses 6 through 9. Since indeed God considered it just to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to grant relief to you who are afflicted as well as to us. You say relief from affliction? That sounds great. Well, when does that happen? End of verse 7. When the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven with his mighty angels 
in flaming fire, inflicting vengeance on those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And what will be the outcome of those who do not obey the gospel of God? They will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and the glory of his might. This is Peter's point. If even we who are washed, who are sanctified, who are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God, if even we can't escape the righteous judgment of a holy God, then how will the unsaved? The answer is they surely will not. God's judgment is inescapable. You will either face it as a child of God bought by the blood of the Lamb or you will face it as an enemy of God beneath the vengeance of Christ. But all men will stand before God someday. And so when we're going through suffering, we should compare the inescapability of our judgment to that of the world's. And then second, we should compare the intensity. See, quoting Proverbs 11, verse 31, Peter writes this, And if the righteous are scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? In other words, if we who are being saved, must pass through so much pain and agony in this life, how much more those who are being condemned will face someday. See, if God so lovingly, or excuse me, so strongly and patiently judges his people whom he loves, what will his fury someday be on the unrepentant, the unbelieving, and the ungodly? Revelation 20 verses 11 through 15 warns us that they are going to stand before the throne of God someday and they will be judged, each and every one of them, according to what they had done, namely, what did they do with the saving gospel of Jesus Christ? Did they run to him for refuge and salvation and forgiveness or did they continue on in pride and self-righteousness unto destruction? And and it says in Revelation 20, 11 through 15 that everyone's names who are not found written in the Lamb's book of life will be thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. And therefore, you and I should take pause and we should assess our situation before we who are headed to glory complain about the suffering that we're having to face now. Because there are those who might avoid suffering in this life, but will be tormented by suffering forever and ever in a lake of fire that burns with fire and brimstone where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. That is the fate of those who do not respond in saving faith and receive redemption and the forgiveness of sins through faith in Christ's name. And so our suffering as believers need to be, needs to be compared Believer, the closest you'll ever get to hell is this life only. And for those who do not trust in Jesus Christ, the closest they'll ever get to heaven is this life only as well. And so our suffering as believers need to be compared if we're going to respond to it for the glory of God rightly. It may be inescapable, yes. It may be intense, yes, but it is not worth even being compared to the suffering that awaits those who do not obey the gospel of Jesus Christ and submit to his saving sovereignty. And so our suffering needs to be assessed. What is its cause? What is its comparison? 
can I say, praise God for Jesus Christ our Lord, who saves his people from the wrath of God by taking it in their place on the cross. And how can I give a passage like this without saying this? If you have not trusted in the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, if you still find yourself in bondage to sin under the present and eminent wrath of God, I plead with you today, see your dreadful state, flee to Christ for refuge, get on his saving ark before the door closes, flee to Christ for forgiveness, and flee from the wrath of God, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and be saved. That's the message if you haven't trusted in Christ. And for those of us who have and have found blessed refuge in Christ, knowing that we will not face final condemnation through faith in Jesus Christ, knowing that we will not have to face that intense suffering, knowing that all the suffering we're all going to have to face will be in this life only, If we want to handle suffering rightly for the glory of God in our day, then our suffering must be assumed. Our suffering must be appreciated. Our suffering must be assessed by these two ways. And then finally, our suffering is to be assigned. Is to be assigned. Because even though, yes, the suffering of hell is more intense, we still suffer as believers. And it is still heavy. And therefore, how do we handle the hardships and sufferings that come into our life for the glory of God? Verse 19, Therefore, let those who suffer according to God's will, those who are beloved, as he said at the very beginning of this passage, let them entrust their souls to a faithful creator while doing good. This is where Peter leaves theology and goes back to pastoral insight here. Combined with what Peter is going to teach at the end of the next chapter, this is the final word on the subject of suffering. How are we as believers to handle suffering when it comes? Answer, we are not to handle it alone. When we suffer while doing God's will, we are to take that suffering and we are to turn it over and entrust it to the Lord's care. As Peter says here, we are to entrust our souls to a faithful creator, which if you remember, is exactly what Jesus did. 1 Peter 2.23 If you look back at that verse, it says that when Jesus suffered, he did not threaten, but he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And so when Jesus suffered, what did he do? He actively entrusted himself to his Father's good care. And when we suffer, we are to do the same as well. We are, as Peter says, to entrust our souls to our faithful creator. Now, if you don't believe that God is the creator then you're going to have an awfully hard time obeying this command. But if you believe that God is the creator and that he created everything out of nothing, then you already know that he's a God of infinite power and faithfulness. And he who created all things by the word of his power is also he who sustains all things by the word of his power also. What God creates, he faithfully sustains. And that's a God that you can entrust your salvation, your situations, and your very soul to. You can entrust it to an all-faithful creator. As Philippians 1, 6 says, He who began a good work in you will finish it. And as Peter's going to say in the very next chapter of chapter 5, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you into his eternal glory in Christ Jesus, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. He who called you is faithful, 
First Thessalonians says, he will surely do it. So don't carry this burden alone. That's what Peter's saying. When you're a follower of Jesus Christ and you enter into sufferings, remember who went through that suffering ahead of you. Christ did. Why? So that he might be a faithful high priest. So that he might be able to be with you in that suffering and carry that burden for you. Cast your cares on him for he cares for you. Entrust it to him and he will show himself faithful. Faithful in sustaining all of his people and faithful in fulfilling all of his promises. And so in light of that, after entrusting our situation and our souls to God's faithful care, what's left for us to do? The answer is simply keep on doing good. This is critical as I was thinking about this in the times of suffering that the Lord has led us as a family through. Simply keep on doing good in the midst of suffering. Chapter 2, verse 15 says, For this is the will of God in doing good. As Christians, this is is the word I want to share with you. As Christians, we must not let our suffering consume us. We are to keep on doing what is good. We are to keep on serving one another. Brothers and sisters, this is a good word because speaking from experience, when we enter into suffering it can sometimes begin to dominate our every waking moment. It's all that we can ever think about from the moment our heads leave the pillow to the moment it returns and in the restless hours in between. And so how do we break through that often crippling effect and begin, as Philippians 4.8 says, to start thinking once again about that which is true, honorable, just, pure, lovely, commendable, excellent, and worthy of praise. How do we start getting our minds through the suffering and start putting into practice what it actually looks like to trust the Lord and commit our days and our times to Him? The answer is, what it looks like is doing something good. Set your mind, believer, if you're undergoing suffering, set your mind not on your pain, but on God's overriding purpose and do something good today. Do something good today. You were made to worship God. You were made to reflect His goodness and His beauty in everything you do. So do something good today. Even if it's as small as to weed your garden, plant some flowers, watch the sunrise, have coffee with a friend, write out one verse, memorize one scriptural phrase, whatever it takes in the cloudedness of your suffering, do something good. Put feet to your faith. Entrust your suffering to your Savior and do something good today. That's how we're to handle extended times of suffering and not be consumed with the pain and hardship that we endure. Entrust your souls to God and keep doing good. Trust and obey. Trust and obey. That's how suffering is to be assigned to the faithful Creator. And so as end-time exiles, we need to remember that days of difficulty are going to come. And when they come, we need to handle them properly for the glory of God. 
The first way to do that is we need to assume suffering as part and parcel of our Christian life. Jesus did not make it into heaven without first going to a cross. Neither will we. We will have to face suffering on our way to glory. Second, we need to appreciate suffering. It is the means by which God imparts to us special grace and power to conform us into the image of His Son, Jesus Christ, in love. The third thing we need to do is we need to assess suffering. We need to examine what is its cause and what is its comparison. And then finally, we need to assign suffering. We need to handle, we need to hand it over to God's faithful care and keep on doing things that are good, even in the midst of pain. In light of that, I came across the lyrics of a hymn this week that perfectly encapsulate what Peter's teaching us regarding the need for us as pilgrims to assume, appreciate, assess, and assign our times of suffering here. And so I'd like to read it at this time. It goes like this. God has not promised skies always blue, flower-strewn pathways all our lives through. God has not promised sun without rain, joy without sorrow, peace without pain. God has not promised we shall not know toil and temptation, trouble and woe. He has not told us that we shall not bear many a burden, many a care. God has not promised smooth roads and wide, swift, easy travel, needing no guide, never a mountain, rocky and steep, never a river, rapid and deep. But God has promised strength for the day, rest for the labor, light for the way, grace for the trials, help from above, unfailing sympathy, undying love. We can entrust our souls to a faithful creator while doing good. To this we have been called. And so may God give us grace this week to walk in a manner worthy of our calling by how we handle times of suffering. And this is the word of God from 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12-19, through 19, which I now commit to your further study and your faithful obedience until our faithful creator to whom we have entrusted our souls and who sustains us daily, returns for his own. To that end, let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for your word this morning. We thank you that your word is so true, that it does not paint the picture that this world is going to be a world in which we live our best life now. But it examines that man is It confesses that man is prone to trouble as the sparks fly upward. That to live in this world means to face times of difficulty. And then to follow a Jesus that went to the cross and then headed to heaven means surely to follow in his steps. So Father, I thank you that as you have given us an accurate view of what our world and what our life will often look like, we thank you that beyond even that, you have given us your truth to lead us on right paths for your namesake. And that you have given us this this lamp to understand by which we can pass through suffering for the glory of God. Father, I pray that as none of us knows what this next week has in store, I pray that we would not wait until suffering comes to entrust our souls to you and do good, but that we would commit to doing that this very afternoon. Father, if we've neglected your word, help us to return to it so that we would know to whom we are entrusting our souls to. 
Father, I pray that if there are sins that we have harbored, that perhaps we are facing suffering from others because of, I pray that we would repent of those today so that when we go through hardship, we would be able to rejoice knowing that we are doing it for the glory of Jesus Christ, for the development of his character in our lives and for the salvation of the lost who are around us. Father, give us grace to respond to this hardship as Jesus did. Father, most of all, I pray that we would be faithful, that we would not lose heart, but that we would continue each and every day to just do one more good thing for the glory of Jesus until he calls us home. Give us grace towards that end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.